Welcome to episode two of Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. If you haven't yet listened to episode one, you can find it now on Spotify and iTunes. The first episode is called Where Can I See You Naked Online? In each episode of this podcast, we'll be speaking to a regular human being about their experiences with vulnerability. I'm asking people to bring something to the table about what vulnerability really means to them. Vulnerability isn't easy to do, and it's something that most of us don't really want to show other people. But vulnerability is also what makes us human. It's what allows us to connect with one another and also to find a level of self-acceptance and self-compassion that can make life feel so much easier. Today, I'm talking to Danny. He's a UK Army veteran in the Royal Engineers for seven years and now runs ProSafe Consultants, which delivers training to UK companies. He's a mental health instructor for Mental Health First Aid England, a swim host for Mental Health Swims and an ambassador for Operation Wait Out. So welcome, Danny. Thank you. So the topic that you have picked for this week is notes on vulnerability. Vulnerability isn't weak. I'm just going to very quickly cover that definition of what vulnerability is so that we're all on the same page. So it is allowing yourself to be seen for who you really are when you can't control how other people are going to react to that. But I thought it might be quite helpful to start by looking at the dictionary definition of vulnerability, which is actually really different. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, vulnerability is the quality or state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed, either physically or emotionally. How do you think that fits in with your idea that vulnerability isn't weak when we've got this dictionary definition that says it is? Yeah, I guess that second one, the the first one, uh, the first definition is the the one that that I wish was the, the, the actual definition, I guess. But the second one does resonate more with with me and what my, uh, I suppose my journey or my understanding of vulnerability is and my own vulnerability. It's only probably the last couple of years, two or three years that I've, that I've acknowledged that a lot of what I looked at as potentially a weakness in myself were in actual fact, personal strengths or would be looked at as personal strengths now in, in so much as the ability to paddle my own canoe as it were, rather than try and fall into line with with societal expectations or or norms at the time that caused me to feel the the anxiousness or the disparity between what I thought I should and shouldn't be feeling. So yeah, it's um it's an interesting the, the second one's an interesting definition, but it's certainly the one that I think most of us are more familiar with. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, I think you mentioned there that your perception of what vulnerability was. And the fact that you maybe didn't want to embrace it came from this idea of societal expectations or societal norms. Can you tell me a bit more about how how that felt like when you were growing up? It's really difficult because I I sort of thought to myself when I was thinking about this podcast the other day, was I or did I spend my youth in a real macho environment where, you know, big boys don't cry don't show your weaknesses, um, man up kind of sort of uh, environment. And, and the, the reality is I didn't. So my dad and my brother are visually very physically imposing. They're big, fit guys. Um, and, you know, if macho were to be defined or drawn on a, a bit of paper, then I guess you would draw those two. But 
it came to me when I was just seeing my uh, my son Patrick off to school the other day, and I bent down, gave him a big kiss, and said, I "Love you, have a great day." And he said exactly the same, and gave me a big squeeze. And actually, that's that was my whole childhood. There was never all the way through, all the way through my childhood, my adolescence, and into adulthood. There's never been any issue around giving any of my male family or friends a kiss, uh, you know, and a squeeze and saying, I love you or, you know, how much someone means to me. So I can't really trace back where those societal norms came to. But but where I think it really kicked in was when I placed or when I grabbed hold of those societal expectations when I joined the forces at 16. Um, so even had quite a friendly friendship group growing up, you know, there were there was no real bravado. But when I joined the military, there was an expectation that all of that stopped. And there was a real need, I think, then to step into line. And as a generally quite an emotional person, heart on the sleeve kind of a person, I think that's when I, I really thought to myself, wow, I'm a lot weaker than I thought I was. But in actual fact, it's only now through the, uh, the hindsight goggles that I can see that that was more of a strength than a weakness. I just wasn't able to demonstrate it or practice it. It's really interesting that that you described that first thought of not fitting in in that environment as being a problem with you and also being a, a problem with your weakness. Mm. If, I, what it what it boils down to when I was when I was younger, and it sounds like the start of one of those fantastic autobiographies, doesn't it? You know, I was bullied as a child, but I was, um, and I was a big lad and. And I was, whatever you call it, picked on, bullied. But I was definitely, there was there was psychological more than physical, um, you know, taunting. And it's, it, as sad as it is, it goes on and it will go on. But it was quite damaging. And, and I, I wanted to lash out. And I was able to. I was physically able to. and physically capable of doing so. But everything inside me, all of my upbringing and my respect for the people and the way that I've been told to sort of be in society told me not to do that. So this tension, this this pressure, this um, anger would build up to such a point that I would actually then just cry. So, of course, you can imagine the reaction to that in a, you know, in a playground or in a situation where you're expected to sort of the fight, fight, fight. You're a big lad and actually all you do is you just get really angry and then cry. I've struggled with that you know, a lot growing up. And I didn't realise until I actually did start to retaliate. And then it, for what seemed like the rest of my adolescence and early 20s was forever getting into scrapes and scuffles because I went the, the complete opposite way. Rather than allow myself to, to maybe be emotionally intelligent and courageous enough to, to turn the other cheek, as Kenny Rogers might say. And before you ask, yes, I do cry sometimes when I listen to that song. <laughs> uh, I chose what I now see as, as as the weaker option, but at the time the easier option, which was to you know to take the physical path and the physical route out of the problem rather than the brain. And and you don't have to look too far into maybe the old Stoics and philosophers of, of Greece to see that I think if you can train the mind before the body then you're ultimately going to get a more satisfied approach so that's where i that's where i really struggled and that's where that whole learning process as one might expect men in particular aren't really emotionally developed until into their 30s according to a lot of studies 
So for me, I can look back at that now with the hindsight of that evidence and the, the sort of stuff that I do now and, and see that I was probably learning. And unfortunately enough, I, I accepted and acknowledged that the way that, and not always, but the way that I tend to do things now is to lead with my thoughts and emotions rather than my hands um, and legs. Do you think, because um, this idea that what you've just mentioned about how men are sort of emotionally underdeveloped until into their 30s, I often feel a bit cautious of labelling everybody like that. But also my experience of that is that that's probably true. Um, yeah. But also I feel like it's a shame. I don't, I don't feel like it's because men aren't capable of being emotionally developed at a much younger age. Like surely it can't be a physical thing. What do you think needs to change do you think that can be changed i think it can and i think it is changing the change that i do see happening is that certainly it's becoming more acceptable for men young men and teens to be open about their emotions and there's a lot less stigma uh, attached to it and discrimination attached to it so i think that'll have a positive effect or a net gain effect on when that end date for emotional development really is but of course if society and the societal expectations or the norms start to acknowledge that that men in particular can be more open about their relationships about their feelings uh, about actually you know accepting that no i don't want to go and beat my chest or or fight i actually want to use my words to get out of a situation um and that is the change that I'm seeing now. The change that, as hard as it is for me sometimes, I have to bite my lip because of my upbringing, is when one of the kids falls over and I say, don't cry, take a deep breath. But actually, you know what? Just cry, just get it out. And and then, you know, everything's a bit better after a cry, isn't it, normally? That's quite interesting because that's the element of shame coming in there, isn't it? Like, yeah, you might say, oh, don't cry or you know, you're too sensitive or you're too emotional, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so what kind of a, a role does shame have to play in all of this? Because it's it's so often used as a tool against women. And I'm not sure I have the same understanding of how it gets used against men. So I joined the army, I joined the army at 16. Um, and I was a big lad, I was fit, I was lean, I, did, I wasn't carrying any body fat, but I was just heavy. I was, I was a muscly young lad. Um, I was what, 16 stone, I think, which when you think of that, 100 kilos, 100 plus kilos as a 16-year-old, you just think, that's pretty sort of hefty. And I was allowed into the forces, but all my peers, all the people I was training with, bar a couple of people, were a lot, you know, a lot lighter. So physiologically, I was at a disadvantage. But that physiological disadvantage became a mental disadvantage because of the way that the training at the time was was geared and it has changed um to, to more of the sort of stuff that i would have really enjoyed um but it was geared at running speed long distance endurance type stuff and i simply quite simply and it took me a lot of years to acknowledge this i quite simply wasn't able to keep up and it wasn't through lack of cardiovascular fitness it was a pure physics thing i was carrying a lot more weight but i was having to carry it and still try and keep up the pace of these lot lighter people. I wasn't able to look at that in that sense then, because it was always, what are you doing at the back? You're always at the back, Kearney. You're always at the back. Get a grip. Get up to the front. You're going to be sent 
got dropped back to another course. You're going to have to start training again. You're going to get kicked out. Years of that, you know, months of it in basic training. Then I went on to do combat engineer training, which suited me a little bit more because it was carrying heavy stuff and building bridges. But still the whole, every time we went on a run, that was the thing that was getting me. So in my brain, it was a constant weakness. Had I had my brain now that I've got then, I would have been able to look at that and go, you know, do you know what? There's a clear, there's a clear reason for this. So there's got to be a solution. But I didn't. I just allowed that shame of being at the back, that one that was letting everyone down, to drive me forward. And I would say it had a, a negative impact on my mental health because it, it still to this day I struggle to run with anybody other than a handful of people that I can actually physically go and have a run with because as soon as someone runs a little bit in front of me, I switch off. You know, I can't I can't keep running. I find it really difficult because it takes me back to that place. Mm. Um, I can no longer or do no longer choose to compete in, you know, fun runs, bike rides, tough mudders, anything like that because of the whole anxiety around seeing people overtake me. So it's, it's the shame. You know, I'm 38 next week. And that shame or that fear, that perception, even now, and I class myself as a relatively balanced person emotionally and physically still exists to the point where it's affecting things that I do now because I don't want to deal with the thoughts and feelings and emotions that go with it so I mean bearing in mind that like a 16 year old boy or even a 16 year old girl is never going to be emotionally developed enough to be able to process shame I just yeah. don't understand why it gets used as like a training tool I'm I'm a bit of a I suppose I'm a bit of a, a bit of an impasse with this because I, I really fluctuate between whether it was a good thing or a bad thing for me. I'm fortunate enough, whether you class or fortune, you know, hard work or whatever, however you want to look at it. But I'm in a position now where all of the stuff that's happened before, good and bad, has allowed me to be in this position where I am now. Um, you know, talking to you, uh, being able to to support other people that have that have got or want to achieve something or want to swim or want to go and walk in mountains or, or just want to chat. And that toolbox is made up of the good and the bad. And I also look at a lot of ex-military people or people that have been in the sort of any of the frontline forces or services, if you like, the police, the fire, ambulance service, and, and th th they've got adjustment issues around being a part of society, but in particular, those ex-military people have got, in quite often the case, a real issue with adjustment or, you know, there's, there's time required to adjust to being a civilian again. Do you get support in the process of adjusting to being a civilian again? More so now, but nowhere near, I don't think, what is required. We do get support, but you've not got to look too far. You and I both follow Operation Wait Out, which isn't just ex-military, but there's a big percentage of it, of people that are really struggling with processing the time that they've had in the services and the intercorrelation with Civilian Street and that whole unwinding and uncoiling the tension that is created in you. So where does that training come in, that make-or-break training? It simply, and realistically, I guess it does make-or-break you. Um and if it breaks you and you continue on, then 
you are developing a real resilience for a certain thing. And that's what they want. That's what they need. There's no doubt about it. If you're being expected to carry a weapon and fight for your life and the life of your colleagues or be in a situation, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, Northern Ireland, Falklands, whatever it was, where there's a constant threat to your life, there's no value there in, and I I say this, you know, and it contrasts what I truly believe, but there's no value there in having a philosophical and um, thoughtful approach and trying to generate or um, conclude a situation through thinking and through talking. You have to be a certain person. You have to have a certain capability. And it's no different in some respects to the person that trains so physically hard to become the world's strongest man. Take Eddie Hall, for example. He's trained so hard to be the world's strongest man and he's a massive, big muscle. But let's say he wanted to stop that now. If he just stopped, he would just be super unfit and he'd have loads and loads of fat around his body that would take years and years to get rid of. You have to train down. He's training to be not the world's strongest man would probably be just as hard in a different sense as it would be to have become the, the world's strongest man. And I think if you take the years of training, development and input that's given to soldiers, sailors, air force, firefighters, police, there should be some comparable detraining or decompression to really try and balance, I guess, the, uh, you know, the the level of input that that creates this type of resilience that's not necessarily the sort of resilience that's going to help you moving forward in a non-threatening environment, such as life in general, in Sibley Street, you know, shopping in Sainsbury's, for example. You don't need to be hypervigilant. It seems like, in a way, vulnerability gets trained out of people in those sort of more extreme situations and that you need to sort of, like you say, sort of decompress and train it back in. But I'm also Mm -hmm. wondering whether, even in those extreme situations, a more expansive approach to vulnerability might be beneficial. Like, obviously, as you say, you can't have a philosophical approach if you've got to defend yourself physically. Mm -hmm. But I, I just wondered whether you thought that embracing more vulnerability during training um, might give people the tools to react differently to those situations, especially when it comes to leaving? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's no doubt that the model of training now has changed and there's a more, there's a much more uh, emphasis on the support and mental health and mental wellbeing because You don't have to look too far to see that somebody that's mentally resilient, stable and balanced across all levels of of mental health. So they're able to deal with the ups and downs, um, the lows, the highs and respond accordingly, respond in a balanced sense, are going to have a much greater opportunity or greater resilience for everything, for all adversity. The training, I think, or the level of training would where the most benefit might be held would be to allow people or to allow the training to, to, to understand what people's vulnerability is, what their stress marker is or their stress signature, what point that pot overflows, and then give people the tools to manage it more effectively. Mm. Um, so if shame is the overflower, then give people 
or allow people to figure out the tools to manage that. So for me, if I'm somebody tries the old shame trick, pulls the old shame trick out of the bag, then I just can quite comfortably now, you know, sitting in my car talking to you, think, oh well, yeah, I mean, I would just, <laughs> I would just completely ignore that because it's coming from a place of this or it's coming from a place of that. I guess the trick is how do we do that for young um, boys and girls, young adolescents, and then early adults when the they don't have the benefit of our, uh, you know, hindsight or our experience or, or our toolboxes that we've developed over the years. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether there's anything in, you know, help, helping young people to develop more self-awareness so that when they get, for example, a shame sort of flare, rather than being consumed by it, they can do what you just did, which is to sort of stand there and be like, OK, I'm feeling that. Um, I can choose whether or not to react to that. That'd be wonderful. And I really hope that I'm able to to instill some of that into my into my kids and you know and share some of that with the people that I interact with as I coast through now. And I suppose if you look at well, lots of people have mentioned it, but I think Shakespeare mentioned in Hamlet that there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Um, and I don't think for a second anyone's suggesting that, you know, being shamed or or the death of a loved one or the loss of a job isn't bad. But of course, giving somebody the permission or explaining to them that they have their power to think about that differently and to remove some of that sting and that whilst we can't change what's happened, we certainly do have a choice about how we respond to it. I think there's some power in that, definitely. Yeah, I think there's uh, huge power in that. That's really where I try and focus mine. I'm not sitting here, uh, you know, with my legs crossed in a meditative position, having just drank a pint of green tea, saying that all things are zen and nothing affects me. Absolutely not. As we discussed, you know, before we started chatting, I've just come out of a really pointy and, and and pressured sort of meeting that, that in the past would have stayed with me for the rest of the day. And I now have the ability to say, well, it's done. There's things that need to happen out of that, but those things aren't going to affect and shouldn't affect the rest of the, the you know, my day moving forward. You kind of described that mindfulness um, and self-awareness as being only there for people who are sort of sitting cross-legged and like drinking green tea and and I wonder whether it does feel quite out of reach unless you're, you know, a yoga teacher and, you know, mm. reading all the books on mindfulness. And how, how can we normalise that? How can we make it the norm to be self-compassionate, to give yourself a break, to be more self-aware? Yeah, um, well, I think I'm, I'm midway through that journey and I had a conversation with, I've, I've never met this person and I, uh, uh, her name's Lisa Shabbos and she does a lot of stuff on the south coast around you know spirituality and understanding yourself and letting go and releasing and I've never met her and I met her on Sunday and we had a really long chat and um I actually said to her I'm not spiritual you know I said I don't, I don't follow a faith uh, and I'm not spiritual but I said but what I do know is that when I run to my own tempo you know when I go out and and I run at my own speed enjoy it look up when I walk up and down a mountain or a hill on my own or with somebody else, 
when I get into the sea in the morning and it's ice cold and I watch the sunset, the sunrise come up or vice versa, the sunset go down, um, I really feel I know who I am and I know what makes me happy. And she said, well, that is spiritualism. Knowing yourself and knowing what's good for you is in itself spiritualism. You don't need to, and in, in her words, you don't need to, you know, shake a, a bunch of sage all over you and dip in an ice bath, for example, to find that place. That's just a method and a mechanism of getting somebody that maybe hasn't got that experience to find it for themselves. But I think a lot of us know what mindfulness and spiritualist, spiritualism is or, or what makes us happy, but we override it. You know, a good exercise that we often use is say to people to go home and, and, and have a happiness hour, not happy hour in the pub, but happiness hour. And that happiness hour would be doing something guilt-free, shame-free. They're, they're two of the parameters for you, not for somebody else, for you, that makes you feel good that you enjoy doing. So whether that's reading a book, whether it's sitting in the bath, it might well be going and having a glass of wine with your friend and having a chat. You know, it's, we're, not, we're not knocking everything off the agenda, but what we're saying is that it's to be guilt-free, it's to be shame-free, and it's to be for you. And when people do that, you often hear people go, oh, I felt so relaxed, I've not felt like that in years. That That is the mindfulness. It doesn't like you said, it doesn't have to be yoga. Um, for me, it's knowing that when I've done this, I've got a bit more work to do. But I will get in the sea this afternoon at some point, either on my own or maybe the family will come down. And I look forward to it and I know that that will reset me. So it's it's available to everyone. If if you're willing to let yourself do it, there is something that makes us relax and there's something that makes us happy somewhere. There is a glimpse of happiness. There is a glimpse of hope somewhere, no matter how small it might be. And and my, my hope, talking to yourself, talking to the team at Op, Operation Wait Out, talking with Mental Health Swims, is that we can just be a part of that tiny part of that bigger picture of just saying to people, look, there's loads of different stuff here. You don't need to meditate. You don't need to do yoga. But what you can do is um, come and have a chat or have a cup of tea or a hot chocolate, sit and watch us get in the sea or get in the sea yourself or yeah. walk up a mountain or meet us in the car park and have a hot chocolate at the end. I don't know about you, but I spent my 20s sort of thinking I could find that kind of thing through sort of booze and partying and shopping and sex and all those things. And and actually, they I think we often turn to those things as an instant sort of cure for feeling unhappy. But actually, all they do is numb. And I think that what Operation Wait Out is really good at, and also these mental health swims, is like you say, just offering an alternative that actually it's, it's really simple. It doesn't cost anything. You just show up. You don't have to do what you don't want to do. Um, mm. It seems to be a very accessible way to get people to experience self-awareness or that connection you said you feel in the ocean or when you're walking. Mm. And that seems yeah. to be very powerful. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and you know, I think probably like a lot of people, we... we have used that drink, booze, drugs, sex as a as a coping mechanism. Um, but equally, there will have been times within that where where it was needed. You know, whether if the drink was with someone and you got to have the chat, or 
or whatever the case may be, then that will have had that will have had positive effects as well. But equally, they often, and certainly for me, um, that the, they can go beyond that, like you say, and become just this trying to search for what you think will make you happy. What I think I've learned from it is that it's what's driving it. So is it an intrinsic desire, something that I know is going to be good for me without anyone else's input say-so or you know the need for their validation or is it an extrinsic is it something i'm doing because i think i need to do it because i think that's what is expected of me to make me happy and it's it's just me and it might it it might not be for everyone else but but i think if the desire and the drive comes from the right place so i want to do this because i know it's going to make me feel good and that's buying a pair of shoes or it's buying a new watch or it's buying something else and actually you know i've done that i've i've saved up I've been looking forward to it and and I'm really enjoying it. But I'm not buying it because I think it's the latest thing and I should have it. I'm not buying it because um, I just need to buy something. Then the driver is the right way. The, the, the force behind what's making me do that thing is the right way. So um, as, a, as opposed to sort of, I need to buy this to be a, a good person. Yes, yes, exactly that. I need to buy this because this is going to make me X. Or I need to go and do this because this is going to make me X again and that's a bit like my relationship with alcohol so like you maybe um I, I'm, I'm assuming from what you're saying in your 20s you know excess potentially um, and i had that and i you know a very boozy time in the forces and then uh, and an equally boozy if not worse when i left the forces trying to find what it was that made me happy in the army it took a lot of years and a lot of conversations and i'm still on that sort of path to establish it wasn't the alcohol that made me happy. It was the feelings I got when I was with the people that I like to be with. Now, it took a long while to work that out, but I can now achieve that by seeing those people and having that same experience, but I don't need the bundles and bundles of alcohol. And when alcohol is present and it's in excess, the whole feeling the next day is, well, do you know what? That's just the price you pay rather than, why do I feel like the world's going to collapse and all I want to do is wrap myself up in a blanket and sit and watch the TV when I've actually got responsibilities? So my relationship's changed with it. I've not excluded it. I've not stripped it all out of my life. So no drink, you know, no party and no late nights. But what I've done is I've changed my relationship with it and I've changed my understanding of what drives it. So it's an intrinsic need something that I want that'll make me feel better and I think by doing so will have a beneficial effect for those around me or is it an extrinsic, I'm going to do this because this is what I know makes me happy. And a, and a very recent example of that is I lost a very good friend last June um, and I spent a lot of time with him and his family and it was inevitable. It was a, it was a, you know, a long-term illness uh, and you sort of build that up and you prepare for it and I'm pretty good at doing that so I don't you know get knocked over but it did it did and when he died I went straight back to what makes this better for me drinking excessively did it work did it balls <laughs> it made it made me feel really worse whereas if I would have maybe looked at that situation and gone what makes this better what makes me happy talking about it sharing good times talking about how sad I feel but actually how positive I am for for this and for that over a few beers would have been a different outcome. I think that's so and, spot on. And I think that's like that 
distinction between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic is really important. It's, mm. I think it's something you, you definitely don't learn that, you know, <laughs> at an early age. No, I think I think it was Plato. I like I like sort of reading all the old philosophical stuff. It's good for the training and the stuff that I do. But I think I think it was Plato, maybe Epictetus, but one of those old guys that were knocking around all those years ago said something along the lines of a wise man will say something because he has something to say and a fool will say something because he needs to and uh and that's the motivation thing isn't it you know for me it's like well i I actually have something valuable here to put in and i'm going to do it and i'm going to get it done or i'm going to say it versus I, i need to say something i've got to be a part of this i need to join in so maybe not saying something but maybe i need to go and have a drink rather than having the foresight and the courage and the bravery to say yeah i'm not going to come out tonight because it's not what i need would like to see you but not under these circumstances or yeah i'd love to do that but i'm concentrating on you know i'm doing something for myself and and having a pizza at the minute wouldn't be the thing i want to do and that's that's the difficult path and that's it comes down to, and I, I say this a lot to people, it, it comes down to courage and whether you link that courage to resilience or whether resilience is linked to courage, but it comes down to actually having the courage and the bravery to say, no, not for me. This is what I need to do for me. Hmm. Um, is there also an, an element of like having the courage to just feel the shit feelings? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, I think it's, it's perfectly acceptable and normal to feel sad it's it's perfectly acceptable to feel fear or worry or anxiety but what would be nice would be to get away from the diagnosis around it for everybody not saying you know certainly just clarify there not saying people shouldn't be diagnosed what i'm saying is that it's normal to feel sad but sadness isn't depression for example unless it's prolonged unless it's got a major impact on your life but accepting that you're going to feel sad for a certain at a certain point for a certain situation for a certain period of time is is empowering accepting the anxiety or the feelings of worry or fear are perfectly normal they're there to protect you they're there to make you not wind the window down in your car at the safari park and show you ham sandwich with a lion but nonetheless when that sadness persists and we don't have the support the ability or the knowledge the emotional intelligence to try and get out of that or there's chemical imbalances or genetic differences that's when we collectively as a society as friends as family need to support that individual to help them get back you know on the recovery path get them back above the line help them to feel better and understanding ourselves that we that we we all experience sadness and there's nothing wrong with that is also useful to have in the old toolbox big toolbox isn't it we've got Massive. a lot of stuff in there <laughs> yeah i do i think normalizing the fact that these emotions these really sad emotions that make you feel horrible are always going to be there and everyone has them i think that's really important too because especially with sort of social media, you know, you can go on Instagram and it looks like you're the only person who's ever had a bad day or, you know, been dumped or whatever. And and you really, I think that sense of isolation can make everything worse. So being able to, to share it, and I would imagine especially men being able to see other men being open and vulnerable about accepting these hard feelings 
would make mm. it easier for for that for other people to then be like okay well i can accept this too and it won't be forever everything changes yeah i completely agree and the the, the uh, you, when you look at um interestingly the sort of the, the, the statistics for for mental health uh, related conditions there is a much higher statistically i just hasten to add there's a much higher number of of women that identify as having, it's all done from the sort of household morbidity survey, that identify as having anxiety or depression-related diseases. Then there, there's, on the flip side, there's a much greater number of men who identify or are diagnosed with having drink and alcohol-related and drugs-related issues. That's not potentially because there's a biological, although there is some biological and sort of epigenetic studies around women having a higher propensity or higher likelihood. But broadly speaking, it's because women are and have accepted, it would seem, as societies move through the years, the ability to discuss and be open about their emotions because maybe society's allowed that. Maybe in the past, society expected it. And, you know, when you look at how it's not that long ago that women weren't allowed to have a, a mortgage without their dad's or their husband's signature. So, you know, uh, we've certainly come a long way. But equally, it was maybe accept- expected that a woman would talk about her feelings and be emotional and then therefore that would get help. I think and- that maybe it's important to clarify there. I do agree, but I think women's emotions were acceptable among other women. And yes. I think yes. there is, there's yeah. often been a message that you can be too emotional too much and, you know... Some women have found that the men in their lives really don't want anything to do with their emotions. Um, So I think women are lucky in that we can talk to each other in a way that maybe is a very recent thing for men, being able to share feelings. Um, And there's another statistic as well that I I found this so shocking that, and this was from 2013, but I think it stayed about the same, is that two-thirds of suicides are men. more more than two thirds. I thought that I don't understand why there isn't more urgency around male mental health, given that it's clearly killing people. So those those suicide statistics are, um, yeah, they're quite, you know, when you look at them, they are scary. So the the statistics for men vary between two to one and four to one, but average out at at three to one. So 75% of men die as a result of suicide versus about 25% of women die as a result of suicide. And there are some real determining factors that, that can be pinpointed. One of the key ones is that, that men uh, tend to not seek help as soon as women and tend to take a more violent means, simple as that, as, as graphic as and as scary as that sounds. They tend to be more aggressive and a more final means um, so statistically more likely to die as a result of the suicide. And women tend to choose uh, a less aggressive means, which in some instances means that they are able to get help. But there's still an imbalance. There's still a massive imbalance, you know, in men dying as a result of suicide. And yeah, I agree completely that there needs to be a big step change to try and support with that. And I do see, I mean, I do as a volunteer for a, for a charity as well, a crisis charity, and I do see, um, you know, a lot of conversations, but, but without sharing any of the details of the charity, 
or the conversations, I tend to speak to more women than I do men. Um, and that is, I think, significant in that women may choose and understand the best way to get help uh, and accept that it's required, whereas men quite often turn to maybe self-medication, drink and drugs. Uh, and I've experienced suicide within my own family. Um, so, you know, I can I can talk having experienced it and with friends uh, and colleagues, former colleagues that have left the forces that, that are still struggling and have died as a result of it. Um, but self-medication and, you know, the shame of admitting that you need help can often be, be a determining factor in, in not, you know, not seeking that help and the deterioration to ultimately, uh, you know, the really sort of final and, and sad means. But there is help out there and it's important to say that, I think, for anyone listening that, you know, there is help and help is available and hope is available as well. There's always the glimmer somewhere, but you might just need help to try and find it, you know, and that's sort of a definite thing that we should get out there. So, I feel like that's something that you're really doing do you want to just talk quickly about operation wait out yeah well, operation wait operation wait out was set up by a guy called steve and and he he talks openly about his journey in, you know into and around mental health and there's no getting away from it we all have mental health and we all have um you know poor mental health on occasion but steve openly discusses and, uh, and, and champions the support of people that have, are experiencing, in particular, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, brought about by multiple things, maybe trauma, abuse, uh, traumatic events, um, you know, periods of time in under stress and under strain, and, and you know, has it, it has a real big impact on on people's mental health. Uh, you know, long term, you know, repetitive, negative, painful thoughts, and lots of reoccurring events. So he set up Operation Wait Out. He's created a bit of a community, sort of over a thousand people, I think now. And and really, his aim was to get people out experiencing the outdoors to see the benefits of just being outside and talking to people um, openly in a non-judgmental space. So listening without filters, listening without uh, your opinion really mattering. But what the person's saying is really important. I think listening. As a listener, you have a responsibility to hear. And as a talker, you have a right to be heard. And that is is what the, the, the group aims to achieve. And I've been on a couple of walks, and the walks are still going on. There's one this weekend up in Scotland doing Ben Nevis. And uh, and it's created a really nice community of people that are chatting and, and, and you know, building relationships around being able to talk in an open space. So that's that's what Operation Wait Out is, uh, and uh, and that's what it aims to do. So. And what's um, the best way for anyone who wants to get involved with it to find it? I think the uh, best way would be to go on to Instagram uh, at Operation underscore Wait Out, and you can have a look there and then send a direct message. And Steve will pick it up and uh, he'll add you to the group, and then you can chat to him. Equally... I'm sure my details can be shared somehow. I'll add your details into um, the podcast notes. Uh, yeah, no problem. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, so um, just before we finish, um, I'm basically asking everyone who comes on this podcast to give me one note on vulnerability 
um, that you would want to pass on to other people to help them embrace to embrace it more mm. okay um i should have rehearsed this shouldn't i um, <laughs> no. i suppose thinking about everything we've said i would say don't necessarily look at your vulnerabilities um or your perceived weaknesses as that as weak or vulnerable look at them as your potential strength because what you perceive or feel is vulnerable or a weakness to somebody else that person might be looking in or that group or that scenario might actually see that as a strength and what i mean by that is if i was able to say the particular times when i felt shame or you know weak actually look this is what i see and this is what i feel i think that would have demonstrated a greater strength and a greater resilience than just sucking it up and trying to break through so um yeah i guess the point would be your vulnerability and weakness perceived or real is somebody else's desired strength that's um, a really good one okay danny well thank you very much for that that's been a really interesting chat thanks alex i've really enjoyed it and thanks for having me on board no problem I just want to say that if this podcast makes it to the ears of anyone who feels like they're struggling in a way that we've talked about today and needs help, there is help available. I will put some references in the podcast notes and you can find more support via Instagram through Operation Wait Out, as Danny suggested, or by getting in touch with an organisation like the Samaritans. Please reach out because you're not alone.